I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following podcast is a member of the Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. crazy youngsters and welcome to part two of episode 54 of chart music i'm your host al needham coming at you live and direct from nottingham the plague city and with me today as before are my good friends taylor parks hello and neil kukane hello boys we're not gonna fuck about oh we've got a lot to wade through in this episode fucking hell it's a banquet isn't it it is <laughs> It's I half expect Adamant to come through a window on this episode. But he well, there will probably also be quite a lot of fucking about. Yes. <laughs> All right then, pop crazy youngsters. It is time to go way back to May of 1978. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. Hello, welcome to Top of the Pops, and right now here's a rundown of the brand new Top 30. It's 20 minutes past seven on Thursday, May the 25th, 1978, and Top of the Pops is now into its sixth year under the reign of Robin Nash, and it's running like clockwork. So much so that Nash, who has already taken side jobs as the producer of the Basil Brush Show, Cracker Jack, and The Generation Game, is now three months away from taking over as the head of variety at the BBC and still finding time to be executive producer of Top of the Pops, which he will be until 1980. In an interview with the Newcastle Evening Chronicle a couple of months ago, Nash claimed that Thanks to the charts and the regulations of the show, it practically schedules itself nowadays. So much so that he once set up an entire episode of Top of the Pops from a phone box in Corsica. (laughs) In another interview with The Stage, he claimed that there would be no changes to the format whilst it was under his watch. While we're in our 14th year and still getting a 12 million audience, how could you change the format of Top of the Pops? I've always welcomed the thought that we would have some opposition in pop programmes from the other channel. If you are the only programme, the responsibility is enormous and you are put in an unfair position. The commercial stations have at times produced some very good pop programmes, but none of them seems to have been sustained. 
I haven't worked on that side. And I know that advertisers are supposed to have no influence on a programme, but advertisers bind to set times. And I've always had a sneaking suspicion that it is more difficult to sell time in and around a pop programme. ITV pop programmes, never really sorted it out, did they? No, never satisfactorily. Odd little things that cropped up. Always got the time slot wrong, usually. And, mm. and you know, just weren't as comfortable as Top of the Pops. Like he says, it is running itself by this point. And you, the, the, the presenters are just kind of airlifted into that format. It's yeah. the presenters that raise any kind of oddities and, and not problems as such, but weirdnesses in Top of the Pops. Yes. Um, with a competent presenter <laughs> who isn't going through, um, you know, severe mental problems, these shows tend to unfold quite predictably. It has yeah. really settled in at this yeah. point. Yeah, what a shame Top of the Pulse wasn't on ITV, though. Fucking hell. The ad breaks, <laughs> that would add a, at least another two hours on an episode of chart music, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Probably for the best. However, ITV appear to be finally sniffing around Top of the Pops' patch because last Saturday at 6.45, the Celebrity Square slot, they screened the pilot episode of a new pop show, Revolver. Set in a nightclub in Birmingham, run by Peter Cook and featuring XTC, Kate Bush, Rich Kids, Steel Pulse and Tom Robinson doing Glad to be Gay and saying that was the song they wouldn't play on Top of the Pops. Clive James, writing in The Observer, was very impressed indeed. If the series maintains the standard set by the pilot, Revolver will be one of the rare rock shows worth following for the quality of the music, quite apart from the attendant social phenomena. By comparison, Top of the Pops is made to look sanitised, anodyne, wet and dull, with nothing except legs and co to hint at sex, and nothing except Tony Blackburn's smile to hint at danger. The danger being (laughs) that the strain on his facial muscles will induce the first known medical instance of a heart attack starting in the head. (laughs) That first episode of Revolver, I remember watching that with my mum, uh, mm. Not with my dad, because if my dad had been there, it wouldn't have been on in the first place. He was in he was in bed having a post-pub kip. Right. And uh, the, the main thing I remember from that is my mum tutted right the way through it. She didn't approve. What didn't she approve of? It was when Peter Cook started going on about Buddy Ollie and all the audience started booing. She didn't oh, not right. approve of that at all. Yeah. <laughs> Suspect he would not get away with his intro to Steel Pulse nowadays, no. but you know, things change. It was very much Tiz was to Top of the Pops's swap shop, wasn't it? Yeah, Tiz of the was, if you will. <laughs> but I remember a conversation about it because t- to me and my mates who were all 10 years old, it was the most dangerous thing we'd ever seen in our lives. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly recall me and my mates discussing in the playground the following Monday, Tom Robinson singing Up Against the Wall. And one of the lines was, also, if you're a prostitute, that's all right with me. Uh, I've gone back and watched that episode. It's not there. It's like, where the fuck did that come from? (laughs) I think at the time we thought, I mean, I did, and I think my mates did as well, that a prostitute was the same thing as a lesbian. (laughs) It is a very unruly show. And, uh, you know, a really good lineup of bands. Yeah, it's great. And it's the... even though a lot of the bands on it are crap mm. because it's 1978, mm. it's still great because it does that thing that 
almost no other live in the studio pop shows ever managed which is that the bands sound good mm. like the, there's an actual live sound that is exciting and clear mm. and it has the atmosphere of a gig yes which you never normally like the tube couldn't do it the no. uh, revolver just does it they just get a big warehouse presumably it's filmed in broad street mm. they just put a load of horrible kids in there and just put a load of horrible <laughs> bands on and it it works it really works and even you know with like a pissed peter cook operating at one tenth power yeah um that's, that's a still great peter cook's uh, <laughs> introduction to i can't remember who it is he says uh, hello welcome to birmingham the city that made lead poisoning the in thing <laughs> uh, i mean the thing about itv's pop programs at that age was that they're either pitched as kids programs and in the kids program slot yeah or they were on far too late mm. and itv never had the balls to put something on in prime time until 1987 and the Roxy. And by then it was too late for me and possibly too late for pop music. Sorry, possibly in fear of just the behemoth that was Top of the Pops and being Mm. just accused of of doing a rip-off of it. But I I, I mean, the episodes of Revolver that I've seen, the one thing I do notice is exactly what Taylor said about the sound. And, And it's something, it's startling how few pop shows get that right. And, and I don't think any lessons have been learned either because, you know, the worst sound of live music ever is BBC live sound coverage now. Like when you see mm. a band from Glastonbury or fucking later, yeah. the sound is just dreadful. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and it's just not in any way analogous to any live music experience I've ever had. Whereas Revolver, stuff sounds raw. Stuff sounds not yeah. dirty as such, but the guitars have power and the drums have power. Why can't other pop yeah. shows get that right? That's Mickey Mouse for you. It's probably just that they mic'd it cheaply. Um, like, you know, when you would get bootleg tapes of bands mm. and stuff, and sometimes it'd be like, oh, it's a soundboard. And they'd always be the shit yeah. ones because there's just, someone just run a line off the soundboard and it all sounded really thin mm. and clean and it didn't sound like a gig. Whereas if it was just somebody in the crowd holding a Walkman up, you got a much better, more exciting sound. Mm. So I think they might, it might just have been the limitation, the technical yeah. limitations. They might just have sort of dangled a couple of mics over the mm-hmm. place and uh, just got a more exciting sound from that than you get now, where everything is a wire going into a thing and it's all. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Top of the Pops might have seemed sanitised, anodyne, wet and dull to a 38-year-old Clive James, but certainly not to 10-year-old pop-crazed youngsters on the estate. So, you know, fuck off, Clive James. But but thank you for endurance. (laughs) In any case, Revolver was put out in the summer of 1978 in the late-night slot on Saturdays. Mm. And uh, it, it lasted only one series, unfortunately. But before they left, they managed to get a good dig in at Top of the Pops, didn't they? They got the Rosillos on to do Top of the Pops and, and essentially took the piss <laughs> out of the cardboard sets and the um, the kaleidoscopic uh, look at the lights. And um, people in uh, dinner jackets operating the cameras and, and making the bands do what they want them to. So yeah, take that BBC. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's always great when ITV basically does a BBC sucks lol. Yes. Uh, just just there's a real sort of childish joy to it. Somehow Top of the Pops managed to wipe the dust off its shoulders and carry on. And this week your host is Tony Blackburn. <sighs> 
it's not been a good period for Tony, has it? Um, he was moved out to the late afternoon slot on Radio 1 last November, which he was not happy about. And he divorced Tessa Wyatt in the same month, which he was even less happy about. And two months ago, he was ordered to take gardening leave due to, quote, a combination of flu, throat troubles and personal stress. Oh, no. However, he's just made an appearance on the panel of New Faces where he took a shine to eventual series winner Patty Boulay and helped her to become the only performer to get a maximum of 120 points. Furthermore, he's just been interviewed in the Daily Express where he denied that he was getting too old for Top of the Pops and Radio 1 and said, I'd like to be here in 15 years' time. Not necessarily as a disc jockey, though. In 10 years' time, I'd like to be in charge of Radio 1. <laughs> Fucking hell, why stop there, Tony? Why not controller of the BBC? Let's have Michael Fish doing the nipple test in 1989. <laughs> this is his first Top of the Pops gig in over three months. He's only got five more episodes to go. Oh, blast. End of an era. End of an era. I mean, he, look, he's looking okay in his white suit with his black shirt. Mm. Um, you know, it is the year of Saturday Night Fever. I think we're meant to think Tony Manero. We've got our own He's, he's not wearing that ironically, is he? <laughs> <laughs> he's not. But I mean, where Tony Manero is smooth and slick as a baby eel. Tony is, uh, he's a hairy man. Yes. You notice this in his chest, which I, I hadn't noticed before. You wouldn't think it, but he's really hairy. He's like Richard Keyes. Yeah. Um, I've never seen his eyes arms tony backburn but i suspect they're really hairy you know to- tony silver backburn but you can see you can see though can't you the pain you can see it around his eyes yes it's an enforced jollity now i can fucking feel it as well <laughs> his heart's not in it now i mean he, he he's now that he's you know supped from the brackish well of heartbreak all this mm. pop malarkey just seems a bit shallow and empty to him, I think. Yeah. Yeah. This is the period, isn't it? I mean, is this the period where he's ca- he kind of can't stop playing R&J Stones, throwing it all away <laughs> on his show? Mm. He can't move on. He's on Valium. Yeah. He's- well, that, that was late 1977, but it's still... Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Saturday Night Fever outfit. I mean, f- <laughs> fucking hell. Well, Saturday Night Fever <laughs> outfit is a funny thing because as soon as a man puts it on, you can tell something about him. Right. <laughs> uh, and you can tell by the way he uses his walk as well. <laughs> well, mm. most most men wear a white flared suit and a black shirt and medallion. And they look obviously immediately funny, even yes. if they're not wearing it in a self-consciously <laughs> humorous way, you know. Mm. Or you don't have to like mm. do the joke Travolta pose like a yeah. tedious old prick at a silver wedding. Just mm. putting it on is enough yeah. to make most men look funny. Um, there's a tiny number of men who can sort of pull it off yeah. uh, because they've found that mysterious balance between machismo and being a prick and genuine likability, right? Lewis um, Collins could do it, but but with a with a black polo yeah. neck instead of a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I can just see Tony, like, an hour before this episode went out, standing in the dressing room in nothing but a black <laughs> pair of pants, picking out which St. Christopher medallion he's going to wear tonight. Um, yeah, using yeah. upon his resemblance to Al Pacino. Yeah, yeah. And he ends up shouting, Attica, Attica, <laughs> at a bemused cleaning lady who's accidentally walked in. The thing is, Tony is not clowning here. No. Right. He's, 
but he's also not serious. This is his tragedy. He's too self-conscious to do Travolta impressions or make it into a comedy yeah. routine. Mm. But the message is clear. I am wearing this because I am not to be taken seriously. Mm. It's this weird combination is what defines him. On the one hand, he's got this sort of elevated self-esteem, yeah. which makes him truly believe that he's a star yeah. with all the, the trappings. On the other hand, he has a total lack of pride and a constant willingness to sacrifice <laughs> his dignity and be a clown without actually having a sense of humour. It's yeah. a really odd combination. It makes him very hard to hate, but also very hard to like. Mm. He's more uh, an object of pity. Yeah, I mean, he's being pitied by yeah, a um, penniless, well, yeah. unmarried failure in his late 40s, <laughs> which, you know, that's quite something. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, it's easy to pity, pity him here because it's mm. etched in his eyes, the Valium, the Barbiturates, yeah. you know, you can see it. And I know like Tessa has not yet perhaps uh, uh, gone off with Richard O'Sullivan. But, it's uh, been in panto with him, but, though, Neil. Well, that's as good as, Yeah, enough it? said. <laughs> yeah. So what's his life at this He's point? He's been hanging off the back end of the cow. <laughs> but his life at this point, yeah, is that period of his life that he talks about in his wonderful Poptastic book where he's, you know, just just pulling people by telling them about his big satellite dish. Um, <laughs> um, but he still can't get it up for Barbara Windsor, you know. I, I think yeah. we're, we're, in that pa- we're in that chapter of Poptastic called The Personal Crisis, The Bitter Price of Fame. With the Anna. wilderness years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it... But Saturday Night Fever with Tony Blackburn in it, I think would be a better film. <laughs> <laughs> I think he'd be more sensible. He would keep the job in the paint shop. Um and he, he he wouldn't piss about yeah. on bridges. Mm. You know, he'd just get his head down and concentrate on his career. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole film would be over in like 20 minutes. Yeah. But, you know, even in this episode, he, he, he still, you know, I'll always like him for one thing. And that, you, you might remember, I think we did do it in, pot, in chart music, his intro to Denise Williams is free. On yes. top of the pops, he really is happy that that record's made yes. it, and and that I always felt with Blackburn that deep down he did care about and love music, and he loved radio, um, yeah. unlike say Noel or DLT or Bates or mm. Savile, who merely see those things as vehicle to vehicles to stardom. So, I'll, and you see it in this episode that of course he has his likes, he also has his dislikes and there's plenty of things in this episode that he just blatantly shows in what he says and his expressions his his opinions about (laughs) but he's still (laughs) got this thing about him the only interesting thing about him which is that he's not unsettling or loathsome like dlt he's not an actual madman like noel edmonds he's not objectionable Mm -hmm. as a human being but he's empty and sort of vapid to the point where it's authentically weird and almost entertaining in itself like when you think about it probably 68 percent of all the words ever spoken on radio and tv were a a pointless waste of everyone's time but tony is Mm -hmm. something else again and i mean it almost makes sense he is the thinking man's dead air (laughs) blackburn Standing in front of a see-through drum kit, resplendent in a white suit and black shirt open to the chest, with a medallion over the top, welcomes us to the show and whips us straight into the top 30 to the sound of If I Can't Have You by Yvonne Ellerman. 
Born in Honolulu in 1951, Yvonne Elliman was encouraged by her high school music teacher to relocate to London and pursue a music career, which she did in 1969. Once there, she plied her trade around the bars and cafes of central London, and in 1970, she was spotted in the Pheasantry Club in Chelsea by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, and immediately cast as Mary Magdalene in the concept album Jesus Christ Superstar, with Ian Gillan as Jesus and Murray Head as Judas. Typecasting. <laughs> While Jesus Christ Superstar became a touring show with Elliman reprising the role of Jesus's bit on the side, she had her first sniff of the charty arse when a mashup of I Don't Know How to Love Him and Jesus Christ Superstar, a duet with Head, got to number 47 in January of 1972. At the same time, Elliman relocated to New York for the initial Broadway run, where she met and later married the record producer Bill Oakes, who went on to become the president of RSO Records. After two solo LPs and four years in Jesus Christ Superstar, by which time she was being asked to touch afflicted audience members by the stage door and receiving letters from all over the world addressed to Mary Magdalene... <laughs> including one from her own mam, she became a backing singer for RSO's newest sign-in, Eric Clapton. Can you imagine that, though? Like, Yvonne, Yvonne, I'm uh, uh, afflicted. (laughs) Come over here. Finally, in 1976, she became a chart regular in her own right when Love Me, the title cut from her fourth LP, got to number six in December of that year, spending six weeks in the top ten. This single... The follow-up to I Can't Get You Out of My Mind, which got to number 17 in October of 1977, is her contribution to the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever. But it's not the original one. The Bee Gees had written How Deep Is Your Love with her in mind, but Robert Stigwood, head of RSO and her husband's boss, demanded that the Bee Gees' own version be used. So she was given this, another Gibb Brothers song, which had already been used as the B-side to Night Fever. It entered the charts at number 21 a fortnight ago, the same week that it got to number one in America, knocking Night Fever off the top. Then it soared 11 places to number 10 after an appearance on Top of the Pops, and this week it's jumped six places to number four. Before we get stuck into it, we've got to go through the chart rundown. Mm -hmm. The usual crop of interesting photos (laughs) for 1978, (laughs) I'd say. Well, uh, Plastic Bertrand... Thinking, mm. hang on, surely a man made of plastic would have at least a vaguely symmetrical face. Uh, <laughs> and also, how come my song is the same as White Overalls by Lad Dusseldorf, uh, strained <laughs> through the gaps between Ludaprick's teeth? Uh, what else? Uh, oh, Andrew Gold, yes. caught midway through the Oh You hand gesture. <laughs> um, D.D. Jackson. Dressed as super milf, but what a great... I, I shouldn't say that because I found out she's actually 23 in that picture. Oh, God. Is, uh, but she, her real name is Deirdre. That is a great record, though. Um, yes. Who else is in it? Raffaella Cara, because nothing says Euro sophistication like a sequin see-through top and a blonde wig. Mm. Uh, and John Paul Young doing... Very little to dissuade mistaken pop pickers that he's the one no one can recognise out of Led Zeppelin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, yes. Not realising that doing that little will only perpetuate that confusion. Mm. 
He uh, does look like the bastard son of uh, Robert Plant and Mickey Mouse, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, and there's the the one and only BG's publicity shop used yes, yet yeah, again. One, yes. Yeah. So often that the slide never went back in the drawer for about five mm. years, and now it's all scratched and dirty, like the Thames <laughs> TV ident <laughs> in about 1982. I've got a chic looking like they've fallen over or there's just been a mild earth tremor. Mm. X-ray specs. Um, <laughs> it's a different photo this time. The one before where they looked like they were outside a, a cat food factory. Because they're, they're mainly in blue, they look like they're standing outside a hospital to receive some applause. <laughs> um, we've got Sham 69, we've got Jimmy Percy caught in mid-belm. Yeah. Uh, we've got a photo of John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John in non-faux-50s clothes, looking like they're, they're having the photo taken at someone else's wedding. <laughs> yeah. uh, high tension, eight members. Rolls-Royce, nine members. Oh. Michael Zager in a bowler hat, looking like a member of a Clockwork Orange-inspired brass band. <laughs> <laughs> like they, They're going to go off to to give uh, Brighouse and Rastrick a good toll-chock-in <laughs> at some point. Half of radio dressed up as glam Santas. Uh. And, of course, five smiling Yvonne Elements in a kaleidoscope effect, which makes it look like Yvonne Elements has just punched you in the face <laughs> that you've been wanting to do for ages. She's uh. got this smile on her face going, oh, yeah, I really fucking wanted it. You've asked for that, you cunt. <laughs> Don't fuck with Hawaii. Yeah, it's, there's generally a lot of hungover mm. men of about 30 yes. standing in front of neutral backdrops neither smiling nor frowning uh yeah. with the the sense of open lager cans just out of sight by their feet yes 11 i find myself um deeply <laughs> deeply coveting ruby winter's a uh, big wicker white chair that's an yes. emblem yeah. of sophistication i think it's been lost always reminds me of that first al green lp you know, sitting on a big white wicker chair you've made it yeah well the, the black panthers uh eldritch cleaver with a spear and a, and a shotgun, and uh, Sting with uh, two page three lovelies. <laughs> <laughs> so, Yvonne Elliman, when she was in London to appear on Top of the Pops the other week, she turned up for an interview with Record Mirror, brandishing an armful of tins of mushy peas. <laughs> they were for her husband, who came from Nottingham, and he couldn't get them in America, because wow. America's a fucking backward nation. <laughs> So I don't need to add anything more about Yvonne Elliman or her song because she's fucking skill. Yeah. What a woman. I didn't know what you said earlier, Al, about um, she was originally kind of going to do How Deep Is Your Love. Yeah. Thank God she didn't. Not, I'm sure she would have done a good version of it. But yeah. imagine a world without the Bee Gees version of that. It wouldn't be a life worth living, really, without that amazing record. Other the Bee Gees version of this song, and it is, it's vastly inferior. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We've talked before about bands who knew how to get a steer from the right people, but mm. the Bee Gees, they always seem to know who to place their songs with. Yeah. To get the most out of them. And this is a prime example. Yeah, and I don't think I'd have liked a Bee Gees version of it. It wouldn't quite have been as frantic no. and as enjoyable as this version. But, you know, it's the year of 78. We keep calling it 78. It is 1970 gib, isn't it? I mean, they yes. just absolutely <laughs> bossed this fucking year. It's you- 1970. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Like March 78, you know, they've got number one and number two in the American charts with Night Fever mm. and Staying Alive. Their writers, producers on Samantha Sang's Emotion at number three. Their brother Andy is 
at number five with Love is Thick in the Water. That's like four songs in the top five of the American chart. Yeah, and Shadow Dancing was the biggest selling single in America. It's crazy. From December 77 to May 78, Barry Gibb co-wrote five out of six US number ones. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, they're bossing of this year. And it's, you know, I know it's intensely associated with Saturday Night Fever, which we're obviously all conscious of in this year. But it, for me, it was probably the Bee Gees more than anything that came out of that as dominating this year more than Saturday Night Fever, yeah. which after all was an adult film that we couldn't go and see. Exactly. You know, so, you know, the soundtrack... It's absolutely starting to turn up in virtually every house that I know. Definitely. I mean, we'll talk about the film later on, but the, yeah. the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, fucking hell. It's practically a Bee Gees Greatest Hits LP on one side. Hmm. And the other side, they might as well call it, now that's what I call music zero. <laughs> we'll go through it. Staying Alive, Bee Gees, got to number four in March of 1978. How Deep Is Your Love, got to number three for five weeks in December 1977 and January 1978. Night Fever, number one, April 1978. More Than a Woman, the Tavares version, number seven this month. A Fifth of Beethoven, Walter Murphy got to number 28 in August of 1976. Jive Talking by the Bee Gees got to number five for two weeks in August of 1975. You Should Be Dancing by the Bee Gees, number five, September 1976. Boogie Shoes, KC and the Sunshine Band got to number 34 last week. Disco Inferno by the Tramps got to number 16 in June of 1977. I mean, you could take Jive Talking out of that because it's not in the film, but you could replace it with Disco Duck by Rick Dees, which is in the film. <laughs> yeah. You know, got to number yeah, six yeah. for two weeks in October of 1976. Ridiculous strike rate. It's crazy. I mean, yeah. as a kid, I think I was barely cognizant of the Bee Gees, even in their kind of Jive Talking 75 thing, because I was fucking three. But obviously this year, they were just, they were just totally unavoidable. And perhaps instantly accessible to kids as well because they were already being parodied by now yes. you know uh, an awful lot i mean i by by you know 78 what i'm five i think they're american i have mm. no idea that they're from manchester for no. me they look bronzed you know they looked american yes so even though i might not have been aware of saturday night fever certainly i was aware that a cultural behemoth was going on but you yeah. know what disentangling it from the Bee Gees was difficult because the Bee Gees just boss this year i mean this song appears in the film as the stripper music oh, oh, yeah. Right. yeah 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 you know when tony's in the bar having a fag and having his drink and that girl's <laughs> bothering him and uh yeah he's, he's too busy watching a stripper and that that was weird i mean like like you said, Neil, we couldn't see the film. Mm. They'd do a toned-down version in 1979, so, you know, yeah. youths could see it, by which time it was far too late. But, you know, fucking hell, if I'd have seen that, it's like, oh, is that what happens at discos? Fucking hell. <laughs> and it's weird as well, because, you know, he's the only person there watching it. If you had a disco in Nottingham with a stripper <laughs> on, fucking dance floor's going to be, there's going to be no men on it. <laughs> And if you could get pie and peas as well at the bar, then there you go. You're, you're sorted for the night, aren't you? <laughs> Alan Hansen's favourite record, this, or one of them. Yeah. I, I, that, this and Billy Joel, I've got no idea how I know that, considering I don't care. <laughs> um, but uh, there's no comparison between this and the Bee Gees version. This is a thousand. The Bee Gees version of this is okay, mm. But it allows a bit too much rock into yeah. it, mm. right? It's got like guitar chords underlining the clever chord changes needlessly, and it just ends up showing their working and yeah. making the structure too obvious. Where the greatest thing about this record is the way it just glides, and you don't really notice 
how complex and carefully and cleverly put together it is yeah until you concentrate on that you're just aware of this magnificent movement and rise and fall and it sounds effortless and natural and it also works better with a woman singing because it's one of those songs that's about uh, a tension between emotional strength and weakness and the drama of that is like the key to the song and this is not ideal for preening hairy chested Mount Olympus residents (laughs) like the Bee Gees who can only really convey hysteria or heartbreak or self-absorption because great as they are their vocal and visual personality is not complex enough to handle ambiguity yeah uh, yeah Yeah, which often comes a bit more naturally to female singers but also more than that it's a question of sound because the unearthly uh smoothness and like perfect balance of the bg sound it's like it's that versus this record which is more immediate and it's got this sort of glare and movement to it with the Bee Gees, you're always being transported out of this world of awkward human emotions mm. into a, like a a blissful machine state of yeah. physicality and yeah. sort of heavenly euphoria or 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 glazed self-pity whereas this is the sound of actual energy and feeling right there's the 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 wild desperation of the strings and horns like curling through the air um and a voice of a human being rather than the 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 triple glazed impenetrability (laughs) of the bg's vocal sound and it's got the freddie perrin production which is not subtle and it's not that technically impressive but it's Mm. just it's just got that sound it's direct and all the important stuff is pushed out front shamelessly like the kick drum is right out front and the horns are blaring out at a level that the bgs might have found slightly vulgar um and that's why this was a colossal hit Mm -hmm. on am radio where it sounded amazing yeah yeah because it's it's not it's not so proud that it has to be perfect and sound immaculate uh, and for this particular song i mean god knows those bg's records that take that approach are unbelievably good but it would it it, it doesn't work on this song this no. song is needs to sound like this definitely yeah because yeah. the Bee Gees, they're like sexy lions aren't they <laughs> <laughs> um it just wouldn't suit the emotion you're entirely correct even though they are castratos when they're singing it <laughs> having a man singing this song just darkens it doesn't it yeah it leads you into stupid marriage territory if i can't have you <laughs> yeah 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 uh, there's a brick going through someone's window and potential suicide <laughs> But when, the, when a woman's singing it, it's more resigned. Mm. You know, Yvonne Elliman's probably going to go off and just get about seven cats. <laughs> yeah, whereas a bloke is going to go and clean the streets. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a shame when this song is prematurely washed away yes, by the definitely. familiar wave yeah. of cabin applause, because it's only for the chart rundown. But that is preferable to her actual appearance on Top of the Pops. When, yes. of course, she sang this to the accompaniment of the Top of the Pops Orchestra yes. in their cups. <laughs> and it sounds like leprosy. <laughs> she was very sniffy about this record, wasn't well, she? Apparently at one point, not now. Well, yeah, but I mean, what? not now, since being arrested for possession of meth. <laughs> She's yes. lightened up a bit about her, mm. the greatest achievement of her life. But, you know, for a while she really she thought this was beneath her. 
Which is hilarious, really, because uh, everything else... I mean, even her other proper records that she made are like, you know, they're sort of sub-mini Ripperton, you know, there's nothing mm. that amazing mm. about them. It's like if you once carried the Olympic torch and you're there going, so, yeah, yeah, but check out this picture of me holding a Cornetto. <laughs> it's always <laughs> much better. <laughs> Speaking of which, have you heard the new Cornetto advert? No. no. They've got an actual Italian to sing it. What is this woke nonsense <laughs> destroying our childhood? When I was a kid, just any old cunt would come in and just go, just a one cornetto. Yeah, as long as they're fat enough and had a moustache. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't get a gay lesbian to sing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this song, fucking mint. It is, yeah, it is. And what a shame she didn't carry on in this vein, because this song and Love Me are fucking, what a one-two punch that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the following week, If I Can't Have You, stayed at number four, its highest position. However, she immediately stepped off the disco rocket. Her follow-up single, Savannah, failed to chart, and she never bothered the charts again. history is contained within the box of delights. It was happening in front of us. Incredible. In our living rooms. It was amazing. Guests pick their favourite television moment and tell us why they love it. And is this the episode where Daisy's just been for the interview at the Women's Magazine? Flaps. That's it, Flaps. Yeah. Named one of Radio Time's best podcasts of the year. I don't understand people who don't see the joy in drawing the curtains, mug of hot chocolate and something nice on TV. Like, what could be nicer than that? Than having a snuggle. Exactly. Nostalgia in bite-sized chunks. Box of Delights from Great Big Owl. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No introduction from Tone we're plunged into the opening act. The real thing with Let's Go Disco. Formed in Liverpool in 1970, The Real Thing were the first act ever to be covered on chart music when Love Such a Wonderful Thing got to number 33 in August of 1977. 
This is the follow-up to Whenever You Want My Love, which got to number 18 in March of this year. It's a collaboration with Bidu, and it's part of the soundtrack to The Stud, which came out at the end of last March and has been billed as the British Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> the single came out last week and isn't in the charts yet, but seeing as the band actually feature in the film performing the song, danced to by none other than Legs and Co and their mate Floyd Pierce, here they all are reprising that very scene so the kids get to see a bit of the stud without having to see Oliver Tobias and Joan Collins having it off in a lift. Uh. We're starting to reach peak disco in May of 1978, aren't we? And if you needed any definite proof of that, all you need to do is open up a copy of today's Daily Mirror and chance upon an advert for Melody Maker. Quote, Fancy yourself as Britain's John Travolta? (laughs) Saturday Night Fever caused an almighty explosion on the disco scene and this week we feature a special supplement on how to run a disco, how to behave in one and where to find the best music inside. We also talk to Jeff Lynne on the continuing rise of his electric light orchestra and find out what's happening to rock music in Italy. Spoiler alert, pretty much fuck all. (laughs) So yeah, even even the heads of Melody Maker are getting on down and trucking to their discos. Trust bloody Melody Maker. It has to be like how to run a disco. Yeah. From the magazine that used to carry, you know, jukebox profits in it. Yeah, I had cursory <laughs> flick through it and mm. it's just basically, you no. Know, here are these decks and these are the turntables which you require. <laughs> yeah, some plastic tubing with flashing lights inside it. Yeah, can you imagine the letters they got a, a week later? <laughs> yeah. Yes, oh, yes, I can. <laughs> I think it's safe to say that the, the the song is the least interesting part of this performance. So let's yeah. get that out of the way first, Taylor. Uh, yeah, it's, it's okay, this. But it, yeah, it's what, all right. What it reminds me of, when I was a kid, I had a 12-inch single on the TK Disco label, Ooh. which I won at the fair, and I don't think <laughs> it had any other identification on it. It must have been by someone. But How did you win it? Uh, I can't remember, hooking a duck, probably. <laughs> but it, I don't know what it was. I only ever knew this record as TK Disco, which was the name of the Florida-based label, which released yeah. loads of big hits in the Casey 70s. Casey and the Sunshine like, Band. Casey and the Sunshine Band, George mm. McRae. But by the end of the 70s, it was heading for bankruptcy, as you might suspect from the fact that their records were being given away for free <laughs> in West Midlands <laughs> fairgrounds. Um, and I played it a few times, but... Really, it was just some disco, you know what I mean? It was just proficient, but totally featureless. Um, And this is a lot better than that, but there is an element of some disco to it. And I don't know how much of that is Bidu being pragmatic and economical, and Mm. I don't know how much is the real thing uh, as a seasoned soul funk band who always leaned towards pop and had no problems with extreme commercialism, slightly underestimating the care required to make this new variation work. Yeah. Yeah. Or this might just be their level now. You know, it's like a Mm. disco version of all those real things, singles which aren't you to me or everything, which are Mm. okay, but no one's that bothered about them. And they've been on the slide for about 18 months at this point. Yeah. Um, well, you'd never know it to look at them. Um, no. <laughs> so maybe there's a slight touch of desperation here, as reflected in that admirably honest and helpfully descriptive song title. Um, <laughs> yes. uh, but it's the, you know I mean? the thing about the real thing is, the, you know, the Ford Capri, 
was a scaled down Ford Mustang, which yeah. they shrunk to fit British roads. Um, and so, yeah, that's always the always the worry with British bands playing American music. You know, it, I love the fact that the real thing were a British group, and they were like, just oh fuck, we're just going to do this. But yeah. It, yeah, yeah, you know what I mean. There's a lot of pretty minor disco singles from the states that actually sound better than this. Mm. Um, but the best thing about it is that you can see why loads of people would have really reacted violently against this at a time when the text and the message of a record was the main criterion by which a lot of people would judge it, right? Like, it's okay making dance music if you've got political lyrics like Curtis Mayfield or whatever. But the lyrics to this are brilliantly vapid. It's literally just about going to the disco for some mindless escapism. Yeah. (laughs) That's fucking great, if nothing else. Yeah, and it has none of the kind of... I mean... You know, this is 78, not 77. So I think what we're seeing with a fair few disco records this year is, you know, disco has by now got moneyed up. It's got tacky in a kind of genuinely grimy, nice way that I actually really enjoy. It's got exploitative in a sense. And you hear that on this. I mean, this would antagonise rock fans to an enormous degree, not just for the lyrical simplicity. I mean, musically as well. What, it's got two chords in it, I think, or three chords in it. It just does, it just, it just stays on one groove. But I, I love that. That sound, that scratchy kind of clavinet sound with a nice solid groove. I'm always a sucker for that. So even though there's not a lot to this, I do like it. Yeah. It sort of breaks into a bridge section where it threatens to become a soul record and then just goes back (laughs) to the finger clicking. It's great. The trouble is. You know, fantastic real thing documentary on BBC Four. Yeah, um, and everyone liked it, so I can't watch it now. I can't watch things that everyone likes. <laughs> if I open up, if I open up Facebook and everyone's like going on, you've got to watch. This. Yes, you no, know, of course I'm not going to watch. Yeah, it. I'm and, like that. and that's what uh, happened with that. I will get to it. You know, like two years from now probably. But um, no, yeah. no, the instant that the is terrible, isn't it? On this, <laughs> you know what? You know what? I've never seen The Wire. The no, Sopranos, nor me. Nor me, Game of Thrones, fucking wanging on about it. It's just yeah. guaranteed to put my back up, so I just don't go near it. It's terrible, really. I haven't even started Secret Army. <laughs> They're going for the disco thang, but Chris Amu, the lead singer, his his voice is too soulful for it. There's still too much of that gritty catch in his voice. Yeah. That betrays a band who aren't made for this. It's kind of like funk music, in a way. It, it's yeah. sort of half funk, half disco. It hasn't quite got that robotic smoothness. Um, mm. There's still a slight, nice bit of frictive edge to it. Yeah. But that's precisely what I enjoy about it. It is, it is a band playing at disco, perhaps, more than yes. an authentic disco record, if you like. Or a band who have, have been booked to play discos yeah it's yeah. like oh shit we got to do this now yeah haven't had a hit for a while not a, not a big one no yeah but expecting a lot from this i guess i think they're on for about eight minutes in the stud oh yeah, yeah. it's a good section that bit from, which is mm. this is a complete re- uh, recreation of yes um yes, whereas because yeah you've got legs and co and i assume it's floyd it is floyd yes yeah doing the same dance routine mm. to this song with the band in the same outfit still got flares i noticed yeah this is obviously something we're meant to recognize but they can't or won't announce it mm. as what it no. is because the stud is a naughty x-rated yes. film which can't even be mentioned <laughs> on a family show 
Um, Tony wouldn't watch it. He'd be bored, wouldn't he? Uh, yeah. He'd, he'd just... We've already learned in previous chart musics that Tony Blackburn is bored by pornography. <laughs> <laughs> and But what is a shame is that they have deviated slightly in costume choice for legs and coats. Yes. Because in the film, they got their glad yeah. rags on because mm. they're in a nightclub, whereas here they're wearing those horrible dance-class yeah, yeah. leotards. Like, people wore to train as disco mm. dancers. Yes. Or to roller skate down. 7th Avenue yeah. with a Coke and a styrofoam beaker with a straw. They're very pineapple studios, mm, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, it really is. And it's about as sexy as old yeah, ladies' yeah. drawers. You know? <laughs> they look like the green goddess, yeah. Diana Moran. Um, <laughs> well, the real thing themselves look really cool in yes. like a really sort of appealing late 70s way. They're all sort of overdone and cokey, mm. you know. And it's, uh, it's like the difference between a, a prosaic unimaginative visual representation of of disco dancing (laughs) right and a and a freer more interesting thing like what kind of crazy or slick or freaky image you might feel inspired to create by the the feel and the the sheen of the music i'm wondering whether every member of legs and co would have been old enough to get in to see the stud Mm. when it came out right i think rosie might still have been 17 Mm -hmm. yeah uh, and Lulu too, although Lulu isn't isn't on this week. Also, too young to have actually been in the nightclub in the film. Yeah. But anyone who's ever spent time in nightclubs will understand that that's just mm. realism. Uh, <laughs> but it's it is funny because when you see the stud, they're in a in a would be erotic film. Yes, rather than a, a early evening BBC show. Some of them take advantage of the absence of the the top of the pop smiles only rule yes to mm. give it some mm. sexy face yes uh and some of them don't like rosie who is probably my favorite leg um <laughs> is just still doing that jolly hockey yeah, sticks yeah. thing that she always did right she's got this big daft grin mm. which sort of looks cheeky and appealing on top of the pops but in a nightclub setting it's like yeah. Just makes you think someone should check her ID. Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's like she's doing the sand dance at a birthday picnic with a couple of chums. You know, it's really goofy. You just picture a load of blokes leaning up against the bar watching, like uh, lions mm. at the watering yes. hole, watching out for the youngest, most defenceless gazelle. I mean, according to the stud, Legs and Co. spend their weekends on a busman's holiday, don't they? Oh, we spent all week dancing. What we're going to do on Saturday night? Oh, we're going to go out for a dance mm. all together. Let's prepare a routine for it. Yes. <laughs> and Floyd, of course, the the the, the much maligned Floyd of Ruby Flipper, mm. who's making appearances on Top of the Pops throughout nineteen seventy eight. He plays the part of the only man in the stud who can dance. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got to talk about the stud because. Uh, just to show you, pop crazy youngsters, the measure of our commitment to you. We've all watched it, haven't we, recently? Oh, yeah. Not together, I hasten to add, because that would have been awkward. That film's <laughs> never not playing in my head, to be honest with you, wherever <laughs> But actually, I mean, to be fair, just to that scene, I think Legs and Co are great in that scene. Sue Menhenik in particular um, are really going for it. And, and um, they feel free in the stud in a way that they don't in the Top of the Pop studio. Plus, they're just wearing ace clothes in the stud that they're not here. Yeah. Oh, the stud is such a good film, though, isn't it? <laughs> it's a great film. And it's an interesting film because although it's billed as a disco film or a, you know, up to date, it's really what it is, is a last hurrah for that 1960s ladder pulling, Chelsea supporting Cockney glam. Mm. Right. And it's. 
it's as cynical and as hard to read as the late 70s themselves. Because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time, you've got no real sense of how camp this is meant to be yeah. or how seriously you're meant to be taking it, right? Mm. And Or how much you're meant to be rooting for yet another narcissist psychopath hero, you know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> all those lines are really badly blurred. Um, and the main thing that comes across in the stud is that wonderful english 1970s razor edge between class and trash so everything in the film is expensive and glossy and elite uh and it's meant to be the high life but there's a fundamental vulgarity and shittiness to all of it Mm. um and a sort of grimy earthbound feel to everything like the introductory shot of joan collins who is being sold to us here Uh as the sexiest woman in london is there in a dressing gown with a fag on the (laughs) gun and it's not meant to be a visual joke or you know, something clever, they genuinely think that's a glamorous image. Like when, after they have it off in the lift and he goes down on her and then they meet in the club later and he gives her a kiss and she says, my, do I smell mouthwash? (laughs) Classy. (laughs) She's a classy lady. Um, So you can take it as a camp satire of aspiration and social climbing and bullshit, but... Really, you think, no, this film has emerged from the world of Jackie Collins Mm, and mm. various veterans of the British film industry now in its darkest days. Um, This really is their idea of the high life. There's nothing funny about it. (laughs) Uh, The thing is, though, with the stud, I mean, I remember the first time I watched it and inevitably... Like, it was like in the 80s, right, when it got repeated on telly or whatever. And I recorded it on video and used it for various purposes, as you can imagine. Um, But because it was recorded on video, it had this horrible graininess to it whenever I watched it. And and that's... I I don't kind of want to watch it on DVD, do you know what I mean? I want to keep... Mm that horrible squalid graininess to to Oliver Tobias's ass that, yes. um, that you only get on VHS. And the squalor of the stud is one of the most important elements to it. Yes. I think I think yeah. it's enjoyable to watch it. Precisely I mean it is a, a rich people being utterly fucking miserable film. Um yeah. you know, nobody comes out of it in any way sort of happy. Um no. and I think that's what's so relishable about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the portrayal of the disco in the two films is telling, isn't it? Yeah. The disco in Saturday Night Fever is portrayed as the only good thing in a working-class Brooklyn lad's life, mm. whereas the disco in the studies where Roddy Llewellyn goes of an evening, <laughs> disco is being seen as a, an elite kind of thing. I mean, he was in America mm. with Studio 54, but it's more of a class thing here, isn't it? Yeah, this ain't even Studio 53. <laughs> but that tension between the glossiness of the shit is central to everything mm. in the stud, right? Like the, the essentially second rate being held up as remarkable <laughs> and aspirational. Like it's got Chris Jagger in it. Yeah. Uh, basically impersonating his own brother. Like how clearly do you want to signal that this film is second rate? Uh, even in the plot, you're, you're setting this story in the high life of the swinging Chelsea set. Mm. And yet everything turns on something overheard in a public toilet. Yes. Um, you'd assume that was quite clever if you didn't know better. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the thing is, I think it, it, it sexually, right, the stu- I mean, the sex scenes, the, the Joan Collins one in the lift, notwithstanding, 
Um, it's that orgy in the pool. Um, oh. I, I think that's a really key moment to understanding the stud. As Oliver Tobias dimly becomes aware of somebody groping for him and it's a male. And, and just yeah. the frenzy of it. That accidentally they hit upon this just really squalid, depressing heart that I find really, really enjoyable um, whenever <laughs> watching that film. I'm so glad, in a sense, although the, the stud was kind of successful... I'm so glad it, it wasn't a triumph, if you like, and it wasn't, you know, um, sort of uh, our Saturday Night Fever. It's a horrible little document of horrible mm, people. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it actually, in a sense, I think if I watched it now, yeah, it would it would put you off fucking. I mean, it's just so... Mm. Ref- and even the supposedly beautiful sex scene, the one shining moment of where, where sexuality isn't horrible and corrupted, mm. is the scene with Oliver Tobias, I think, and the younger girl. Yeah. Um, David Jacobs's daughter. It's just horrible. It's yeah. just really gross. They don't do anything gross, but it's just revolting. That's the worst of all, because... Uh, it is, yeah. They're both they're both scheming there. No, but that when they have that mini orgy in the pool, and then yeah, when Oliver Tobias uh, has to run away from a gay blowjob, yeah. thus showing the camera his ball sack. Um, <laughs> it's also it's got the the least realistic representation on film of what it's like to have taken too much amphetamine as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what they were thinking. But Oliver Tobias is is funny. There's a sense in which he's the archetype of that coarsely dishy, square-jawed pillock, you know. Mm. But the thing I like best when I watch The Stud is imagining how badly Patrick Mower was drooling when he watched it. <laughs> yes. Mower must have been second on the shortlist, right? I reckon yeah, the shortlist yeah. went, in order of preference, Oliver Tobias, Patrick Mower, David Essex, Ooh. Alan Lake... Uh, Paul Nicholas. Oh, can you imagine? Nicholas Ball, Carl <laughs> Howman, Jim Davidson. <laughs> what, and Robin Asquith penciled in as a last resort, maybe? Yeah. Dave Bartram. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't say that. Why did you have to say that? You know, Yeah, you brought one... it up in a previous chart music. I did, I did. I'm now picturing it. Those scenes with Dave Bartram. <laughs> Fucking hell, that would be gross. <laughs> but of course, you know, a soundtrack... Like like all disco films, there's a, there's a soundtrack, and oh, what up to the minute disco tunes are on there? You get "Love Is Like Oxygen" by Sweet <laughs> for a few dollars more by Smoker. <laughs> I'm not in love by Ten CC. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a lady by Baccarat. Making up again by Golda. <laughs> Bang up today. And moonlighting by the old sailor. <laughs> I mean, I've been selective there because it's got boogie nights on it and car wash and mm-hmm. native New Yorker. But yeah, it's it's a mixed bag, isn't it? It is a bit, yeah. Yeah. I mean, God bless Bidu, but if Bidu is your musical director, it's not quite like having the Bee Gees in charge, is it? Mm. No. No, I just, the thing with Stud Soundtrack, I just like the fact that one of the artists is called Ken Lazarus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> It would have been good if he'd had a load of hits in about 1973 and then just gone down the dark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the front of the studio's been block-booked by Legs & Co for this performance. Mm. But as we'll see, that turf never truly gets reclaimed by the kids, does it? It's like the camera crew's gone, oh, we like this. Yeah, it's Keep it, the fucking kids out of the way. A lot of times in this show, in this episode, it's genuinely like being at a gig in that in the kind of... There's big spaces... 
Um, you know, yeah. just people listlessly wandering about. There's none of what... I mean, I kind of prefer this to what Hurl would usher in, in a sense. Five years later, yes. we'll pack it out and make it... I like the spaces. It's, it's, it's an interesting episode in terms of the crowd because we do get to see quite a lot of them and they're nicely yeah. spaced out. But isn't having Legs and Co getting involved in this, isn't this the precursor to zoo wankerage? <sighs> a little bit. And, and they start actually doing that zoo thing of dancing at people in the crowd. Yes. Which I don't think... Legs and Co should be sort of slightly above that, I think. So, yeah, there is a bit mm. of that creeping in. So, the following week, Let's Go Disco entered the charts at number 66. And two weeks later, it crawled up to number 39, its highest position. The follow-up, Raining Through My Sunshine, only got to number 40 in August. But they righted the disco ship the following year when Can You Feel the Force got to number five for three weeks in March of 1979. The follow-up should have been called Let's Try Post-Punk. There it is, that's real thing there. And let's go disco. Welcome to Top of the Box indeed. The next 40 minutes, all the hits right now. At number 16, here's Blondie, and I'm always touched by your presence, dear. Was it destiny? I don't know yet. Was it just by chance? Could this be his neck? A revolving circular wipe reveals Blackburn singing along to the oh, chorus before he realises yeah. the camera's <laughs> on him moment. and he does his gormless joker <laughs> smile. No, no, no. He's singing along the same way that kids in the pop round on quiz shows would yeah. very <laughs> deliberately sing along with the lyrics just so everyone knew that they knew the words to that That's, It's the volume. You can see it. That ending with him, it's one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. There's something, there's something <laughs> kind of claymation-y about his face. <laughs> sort of like it's Harry esque in fact, about his face. It disturbed me quite a lot that bit. Yeah, he looks like he's being operated by Star Turn on forty five pints. <laughs> <laughs> After he welcomes us to Top of the Pops, he pivots to a video of the next act, I'm Always Touched by Your Presence, Dear, by Blonde. We've covered Blondie a time or two on Chart Music, and this, their fifth single release and the second track from the LP Plastic Letters, is the follow-up to Denis, which got to number two for three weeks in March and April of this year, denied its place at the top by Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush, and Matchstalk Men and Matchstalk Cats and Dogs by Brian and Michael. It entered the charts three weeks ago at number 35, soared 16 places to number 19, but somehow dropped one place the week after that. But this week it's leapt another 10 places, making it this week's number 10. So yeah, Blonde, it seems so weird watching this and trying to get yourself back in that sort of zone where this was a brand new band and this was only the second tune you've heard because they're just part of the soundtrack of the late 70s aren't they yeah definitely as is you know i mean parallel lines is and it's probably an album yes. with you know i don't know about you but i have massively i've played that album over the years so i haven't really gone near it for a while um mm. and it it's almost like yeah i was i was listening to this and watching this appearance and just thinking am i going to be boringly rhapsodic about blondie again but fucking hell it's just a great song from a great album um yes. it, it, you know parallel lines is kind of like like 
nothing nothing sort of musically similar but it reminds me of hunky dory in that it's one of those albums that i've probably gone through a period in my life where i've overplayed it too much so i've not been near it for years so it might be mm. time for me to come back to it but this is actually yeah this is one of my favorite blondie songs i think it betrays a really heavy roxy music influence and mm. um i thanks to clem burke it just has this dynamic to it and this excitement to it beyond most um new wave bands and you know debbie yeah. doing what debbie does she's a front person to one of those types of bands those new wave yeah. bands those bands that should be a little bit shambolic normally but she's just got this steely professionalism of a proper pop star um, yeah. there's no cuteness here there's no pretend or playing at pop and no snottiness about it either there's there's no smirking it's just there's a, there's a humor behind this song um but it, it that stops it being just sappily sincere but yeah i mean i'm sorry to be boringly rhapsodic about it but yeah it's just a great song delivered with total and utter authority god bless yeah. mike chapman for polishing up blondie in this period uh, because they've just got this beautiful thing. It's this slight 60s-ness. A lot of Blondie fans, because Parallel Lines has become such a sort of totem of them, would argue that albums both before and after Parallel Lines are better, but I, I think it's a masterpiece, and this is one of the best songs on it. Where this performance actually happens in time and space, though, I don't know. Um, it's a really odd thing, this performance. Mm. I can't quite tell where it's taking place. But yeah. the songs, it's smart, it's dry it's sincere it's 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 modern but it's also looking back only harry debbie harry could make this convincing and i just think it's wonderful yeah a sudden wave of relatability crashes over the show <laughs> like not that there was yeah. much wrong with what's gone before but after all that blackburn and all that sort of <laughs> slick american nightclub style and the weird clash of slick american moves and curious british attempts to cop them mm. there's something refreshing and recognizable here because it's americans attempting to cop a cheap british style and getting it absolutely right and mm. adding something to it but suddenly you feel at home here because these are people who seem like they come from the same galaxy as <laughs> us for better or for worse yeah. Yeah, and they're not being cool or aloof to freeze you out they're being cool and aloof towards other shit that you don't feel part of either. And you're there mm. with them, uh, relaxing yeah. around them and you're getting each other's jokes, you know, mm. even though they don't have the same background as any of us, apart from the, in terms of general experience of pop culture. But that's precisely it because it's a, a sort of a shared understanding of the world that's not based on national or, or racial or psychological identity. It just speaks to people who have one thing in common, that they sort of get it, you know what mm. I mean? Like they're mm. piss takers and they're, they truly love things. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's hard to explain, yeah. but it's, if you understand what I mean, that's all that needs to be said. Um, this is not a better record than If I Can't Have You by any measure, but it connects with your humanity just as deeply but in a completely different way right and yes. it seems to be a superficial way because this is sort of contrived and trashy and has a sense of irony but it's actually just as deep because it doesn't aim at your raw emotions it aims at everything else and it's a funny mm. thing if you resist the temptation to go for people's heartstrings you can hit an awful lot of the rest of them in one go. Mm. I mean, this was constantly on on the radio that I was listening to, which at the time was Radio Trent. And already they're being billed as Debbie and the Kens. 
yeah. by the radio stations and the newspapers and everything else, which is a bit unfair, Massively. isn't it? I mean, yeah, especially considering who wrote this particular number, you know, Guy Valentine is no, mm. no longer in the band. Thank God Clem Burke yeah. insisted that they did it. And perhaps, you know, mm. if, if Valentine had sung it himself, it would not be as, as amazing as this is. And, the, you, know, you know, the doubling yeah. effect on the video that they keep doing, where they double people up. Yes. I mean, I know that's, pro- you know, now, of course, it looks massively dated. But just seeing two Debbie Harris on the screen, it's not yes. even about fancying her. That's a lovely screen with two Debbie Harris yes. on it. I want to look at that screen. I know we've discussed before, because Taylor's uh, in that odd position of being one of the few <laughs> human beings who didn't fancy Debbie Harry. Yeah. But no, yeah. God, I, I, I love all the split screen stuff in this because, yeah, it, it's two Debbie Harris. Who could, who could not want to see that? <laughs> I mean, at the time, I didn't fancy Debbie Harry. Well, you know, the, the, the people we'd talk about who we yeah. fancied, she never came into the conversation because... She was a bit scary. Yeah, and she's unreachable in a way, isn't she? She's because she flashes that little snarl. Yeah, when she every shows now a, when she shows her teeth. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's almost like a sense of this person is beyond being debased. Mm. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> by me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> me and my mates would have seen Blondie as a punk band simply because of that snarl and you know the choppiness of the guitars and all that kind of stuff. Mm. To us, this this was what punk was. Or at least one facet of punk, you know. We, we, I don't think we'd uh, we'd cheat Debbie Arre or um, you know try and chatter up in case she might gob on us. She's just got authority. I mean, she's thirty three at this time, you know. She's she think like any of the other people fronting any of these new wave bands at this point. So yeah, this is also a great record from a critic's point of view because it has this sort of pan historical pop cultural awareness, right? Like there's a a 50s sci-fi thing with all these mm. zooming noises and sense of dumb wonder. And musically, obviously, it's rooted in the 60s, uh, but it's set in the 70s with all these lyrics about the occult yeah. and the, the unexplained. Uh, and yeah. there's a musical acknowledgement of punk and it looks ahead to the 80s in its command of commercial postmodernism and its understanding of image and the intelligent pose. Um, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of things you could say about this record and which might be inspired or suggested by this record. Mm. And it's not even really one of Blondie's best singles. No. but it, it, I mean, you shouldn't pat Pop on the head for being smart, but managing to get yeah. theosophy into a lyric, but not make yeah. it stand out, <laughs> not make you stop and, you know... And think, oh, isn't that yeah. clever? It just flows, which is is a pretty remarkable achievement for a pop song. So the following week, I'm always touched by your presence, dear. Dropped five places to number fifteen. Yeah. The follow up, picture this, got to number twelve for two weeks in September, and they close out 1978 with "Hanging on the Telephone," getting to number five in the first week of December. I'm still in touch with your presence. I'm always touched by your presence, dear. That's the sound of Blondie at number 16. I'm delighted at the moment on Radio 1 to have as my record of the week uh, Heatwave and Mind Blowing Decisions. I'm even more delighted because they're here right now on Top of the Pops.
Stanley. And without warning, another new video effect makes Debbie Harry's face open up to reveal Tony Travolta, <laughs> who licks his lips awkwardly. That was fucking insane, wasn't it? Um, really disturbing. I didn't really notice how mental that was until you sent me a still of it. <laughs> it was fucking alien-like. Yeah, I leapt out of my sofa. Then he brags on that the next single is his current record of the week and implies suckly that he puppet master of the pop scene will once again impose his will upon the charts it's mind-blowing decisions by heatwave we've already covered heatwave in chart music number 13 and this their eighth single release is the follow-up to the groove line which got to number 12 in february of this year it's the second cut from the LP Central Heating, which was produced by Barry Blue and has already been made available to the pop craze youngsters in a form of extended remix as the B-side to Always and Forever, which was released in late 1977 and failed to chart. It's not going to be tidied up and released as an A-side until next month, but that's not stopping Top of the Pops from getting them in the studio. I mean, that's weird, that is, because remember watching this episode and going through the the chart rundown and just thinking well look at all that there's absolutely no way this episode's going to be shit but as we'll discover there's so many stuff that's in this episode that isn't in the charts yet Mm. i mean before we go into this song i've got to put my hands up and admit that i fucked up when we last touched upon heatwave in chart music number 13 because i said that always and forever was on the b side to this and i was totally wrong uh, I saw a DJ-only promo copy of it on the internet and assumed it was the actual release. So please, Pop Craze Youngsters, find it in your art to forgive me. I hate being wrong to the Pop Craze Youngsters. Clearly, because you've drawn attention to it. You should have shut the fuck up. Nobody would have said anything. No, 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 no. People listen to the old episodes. So, you know. No, good on you, Al. Good on you for your honesty. A bastion of honesty in a cuntish world. <laughs> Well, it's it's two superb song titles in a row, if nothing else. Mm-hmm. Mind-blowing yeah. decisions. <laughs> We've already seen a soulful band taking the disco shilling, and here we have the inverse, you know, a band who got in on disco very early with Boogie Nights and doing it really well and proving to be capable of it with the groove line and stuff like that. And now they're going all smooth on us. Yeah. Very smooth. I think the smoothness would have put me off as a kid. Definitely. I mean, now, obviously, such a beautiful voice on Johnny Wilder mm. and it's just a beautifully smooth record. But as a kid, I would have wanted more more Boogie Nights. Yeah. Or Bogey Nights, as we used to of sing course, at school, yes. you know. Um, although, you know, his falsetto is gorgeous. Yes. It reminds me a lot, actually, less of a soul thing. Um, it reminds me of the Mighty Diamonds or the Gladiators. It sounds mm. almost Jamaican, that falsetto. It's really sweet. The performance then, yeah, it probably would have bored me as a kid, but what would have massively intrigued me was, ob- I mean, A, the smoke machine obviously is going completely out of control. Yes. It's in danger yes. of totally obscuring their stage wear, which would have been my main obsession, what they're wearing. Um, yes. Yeah. Are they wearing flares or not? Ooh, are they? I, I wouldn't have well, even been... Well, you don't know because of the dry this ice. This is it, yeah. And I, 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 even if the... Maybe they turned up with absolutely massive fucking <laughs> Saxons but it, and just had a word, said, look, we can't be seen with these on. Can it, you get the dry ice on? It, it, perhaps. But even if the dry ice wasn't there and they had massive flares on, it's, that, it's those T-shirts, those matching T-shirts, those matching tops 
that say heat wave on them in blazing letters. Well, they're the Sweaters. jumpers, aren't they? The polo neck jumpers. Yeah, Jump- yeah I-, I can't tell whether they're jumpers or t-shirts pulled on on top of jumpers because the lead singer appears to have a turtleneck version of it. No, no, no. Let me let me put you right here. <laughs> they're crew neck sweaters. Yeah. But Johnny Wilder is wearing a polo neck underneath his. I see. Toasty warm in the studio lights, I would imagine. Or, or he's got a love bite. Yeah. They do look almost knitted. Excellent stage. I mean, mm. obviously, in the middle of lockdown, I'm thinking of getting out and about. So I was thinking of, if we ever do, like, a live chart music, we should all have um, yeah. chart music podcast t-shirts on perhaps with our faces on it like uh, our individual faces on it of course when i picture a chart music podcast t-shirt by the way it looks like the front cover of the hymn book come and praise (laughs) from the from the 80s but but with our faces on it i think we should do that and i if we with the the urchins on it like like in the sunday gang but but um i think if we do ever do uh chart music live by the way one more thing We've got to aim stupidly high. Um, like Stefan Dennis, we've got to book the NEC or something. <laughs> and, you know, 50, and oh, like yeah. 54 people will turn up or something. It'd be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> Before all this shit happened, I was thinking of a chart music roadshow. Oh, mate. Where we played in the sort of caravan parks. <laughs> and didn't even announce it. We'd just turn up on some pallets <laughs> and just talk about the old sailor. Um, while people are going to the standing tap and filling up the kettles, <laughs> totally ignoring us. Maybe next, Maybe year. next year. But yeah, heat wave sweaters. Back to the important things. Yeah. It, look, they, for anyone Sorry, who yeah. for anyone who hasn't seen this, they're black sweaters with a, a like a orange band around the chest that says heat wave on it. Yeah, with a load of sequins around it. <laughs> yeah, it's like a graduated fade, isn't it? So it's like fire. Yeah, almost certainly made mm, on a yeah. knitting machine. One of the great mystical items yeah. of the 1970s, right? We never had one. I never knew yeah. anyone who had one or anyone who no. ever saw one. No, no. no. But the story was always that these were like the, like the 3D printer of the olden days. Like you just you got a picture <laughs> yes. of the 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 triptych of the temptation of St Anthony. Put that on one side and stick some wool on the other. Press a button and there's your jumper. <laughs> I I looked this up. I went on the internet to see what they actually yes. looked like. Just look how deep we go for you pop crazy youngsters. But just to check that they actually existed and they weren't a myth. Mm. And yeah, they they look like a telephone exchange. Yeah. And I mean, they only reproduce pictures mm. to a like a 16K spectrum level anyway. But it is, Johnny Wilder's look here is great. He's got a, yeah, he's got the, the sweater on with a black polar neck under it and a big silver medallion over it. Um, yes. I, I had that look for a while in the mid nineties, mm. like a black polo neck <laughs> with a did, medallion over a big corduroy sheepskin coat over the top. Dennis Wheatley book club yeah. amulet. So it was a, a winner's, a winner's image. Um, but yeah, it's, I, that decision to wear a polo neck under this thick jumper is a mind blowing decision. <laughs> and possibly inadvisable because I really doubt those jumpers are going to last more than a couple of washes. Mm. Um, at least without all the sequins coming off. Yeah. You'll be finding them in his socks for the next six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we've always touched upon the leaps and bounds in jumper-making technology in the early 80s, but this is fucking next-level shit, isn't it? There should have been more bands with with jumpers with their own names on it. 
I think, yeah, definitely. I can't think of many, apart from this one and perhaps the goodies. Yes. Uh, you know. I mean, imagine Sid Fisher's could have had a nice swastika jumper about, around about this time. But it was a bit code. And he was standing outside the methadone clinic. I just think bands like, you know, I don't know, Can should have had jumpers. Mm. Um, loads of bands. Susie and the Banshee should have had jumpers. Loads of bands would have been improved massively with this yeah. kind of merchandising. I mean, Top of the Pops have really fucked up with the dry ice here because the band's got Heatwave written on their jumpers and they're giving them dry ice. <laughs> when it, it should be bits of red cloth being blown about by fans to, to create a, a fiery image. <laughs> The thing is with the producers, they're presumably thinking they're not going to get a lot from this, are they? They're not going to mm. get, because it's a dead smooth, dead slow song. Yeah. So yeah, the dry ice is there, but it's haywire. It's completely haywire. Yeah. Anything else to say about this? We, we, we haven't talked about it. We haven't talked no. about the song at all. No. <laughs> it's a grower and as yeah. such a dubious choice for a single, but I'm sure it makes more sense as part of the agreeably titled Central Heating album. Yes. <laughs> uh, but it's, no, it's got that very smooth and twinkly Barry Blue production on it, like a, yes. like a Disney night sky. But it sort mm. of drifts a bit. I think, in fact, the actual B-side to this record is more immediate and striking the actual b-side to this record being i'll beat your booty which is (laughs) according to the song is apparently what rod temperton's mum used to say to him when he was a kid i'll beat your booty if you ain't been doing your duty yes because it says she didn't take no jive like a lot of women in 1950s cleethorpes um (laughs) but i'd rather have seen and heard that one you know yeah. But isn't I mean this is this is all right. It's just a slightly odd track because it sounds simultaneously old fashioned and ahead of its time. Do you know yes, what I mean? Very it's like it so. would have made more sense in nineteen seventy four or nineteen eighty one. It's yes. sort of caught between eras a bit. It's not mm. funky and it's not really disco either. I I'm struck by the lyrics though, which go if you think long, <laughs> you think wrong. So don't yes. think too long. This is an intriguing yes. philosophical approach. Um, it's a bit like the wisdom that I've tried to force into my own stupid head when I, whenever I'm facing a mind-blowing decision, uh, which is whichever option you choose, you're going to regret it and wish you'd chosen the other. So just fucking pick mm. one. Stop wasting time. The language yes. in it is strange. I mean, Mind Blowing Decisions yeah. is a great title. To rhyme that with head collisions, uh, that 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 mm. always... And, and factors is in yes. this lyric as well, I think. Will these be the factors that will make our lives a trip? I mean, it's 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 quite strange mm. managerial speak almost. Yeah. Yes. For what's a slow, sultry soul song, you know? Yeah. They should have rhymed it with... Uh, Sternum to navel incision. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, this song always reminds me of Must decide how to flow. Nice and smooth are good to go. Yeah, it's, it's how to flow. Nice and smooth. Fucking tune. Uh, it's been sampled a lot, I think, Mind Blowing yes. Decisions. So I've heard it on a couple of things. I've heard it on a Tribe Called Quest remix, I think. Yes. So it sounds like that already. That's the thing. And, I, you know, obviously, you know, I didn't... Nobody knows in 78 that this is even about sampling to a certain extent. But it already mm. sounds like that. It already sounds like some producer 30 years from it is going to, yeah, twist a little 
good bits out and use them. So, two weeks after this episode, mind-blowing decisions enter the charts at number 56, and four weeks later it went all the way to number 12, staying in the lower reaches of the top 20 for four weeks. Good job, Heatwave. Have yourself another jumper. (laughs) Meanwhile... Always and Forever was picked up on Big Star by Black American Radio, soaring to number two on the R&B chart and number 18 on the Billboard Hot 100, was put out again over here and got to number nine for two weeks in December. Remember when we watched that song on Top of the Pops in in that chart music and they've gone from wearing their slinky black jumpers to to full-on 70s um, horoscope signage mentalness. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, they they all look like they're in a pot noodle advert from the 90s, as you put it, Taylor. (laughs) And, of course, it's had a second life in the 90s as the advert music for Options, the hot chocolate drink for people who were too fucking lazy to put some milk in a pan and heat it up. You don't need to put milk in a pan anymore, Al, you know, to make cocoa. You don't need to. Yeah, or a microwave, then. Or a microwave. Yeah, we want to watch liquids and microwave. Superheated milk is no joke. Mm. <laughs> That's some valuable consumer advice, though. We're just like old men going off down a fucking <laughs> dead end there, aren't we? <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> I said I must decide how to go. Is she mine? I want to know. If you think long, you think wrong. So don't think too long I said I must decide how to go If she might I want to know Well, I don't know about you, pop-crazed youngsters, but all this red-hot chat about late 70s jumper technology has about knackered me out. So we're going to stop, we're going to rest, we're going to come back hard tomorrow for part three of Chart Music 54. So, on behalf of Taylor Parks and Neil Kulkarnay, my name's Al Needham, demanding that you stay pop-crazed. <laughs> Sharp music. Great big owl.com. Hello, I'm Chris England, and I'm here to tell you about the Fun Factory podcast, available now on Great Big Owl. Each time, I will be reading a couple of chapters of my novel, The Fun Factory, a historical comedy about the history of comedy, so it will kind of be like a free audiobook, which you can listen to at the gym, or jogging, or at your desk while pretending to do your job, or on the train, without the embarrassment of people seeing you actually reading a book like some kind of swat. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.